0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, if you have a Bible, we're not going to do a long study, but on a very important one, Matthew chapter 16. And I want to just, you know, I've got a handful of application points, life lessons. So try to follow along. At the very least, you'll know when I'm about ready to be finished. So anyway, okay, number one. When we come to Matthew 16, we arrive at a turning point in Jesus' ministry, Um, a significant turning point, because in this chapter, Matthew 16, for the very first time, Jesus mentions the church. Now, this is the first gospel, the gospel according to Matthew, you know, the tax collector that became one of the disciples. And he's been following the life of Jesus from his birth to the beginning of his ministry and his baptism and the fullness of the power and the Spirit and miracles and healings and teachings and the Sermon on the Mount and raising the dead and casting out demons. But now, for the very first time in this chapter, it's not this message this morning, but over the next several, that he introduces the concept of the church. And the second reason that this chapter is a turning point is that he begins, finally, to speak openly, clearly, directly, and bluntly about his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, you need to, so we're probably nearing the the three-year mark or so of Jesus' ministry here Matthew 16. Um, And let me just say this though he tells them you know you read it and it's we already know the end of the story and we know what happens but the disciples he plants that seed and tells them we're going to jerusalem when we get there i'm going to be rejected i'm going to be betrayed i'm going to be crucified i'm going to be buried and on the third day i'm going to rise from the dead they hear that but they don't really believe it or they don't really get it or they don't really see it. In fact, it won't be until after it's already happened and he's already resurrected and finally even ascended and gone to heaven that they go, What? Oh, now we understand what he was saying after the fact. So uh, he is planting the seeds. He is preparing the disciples for what is about to come. So I want to look at the first four verses because here the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus demanding a sign. And interestingly, they're demanding a sign from the sign of all signs. So Matthew 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky for weather, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Oh, this is amazing, because here you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two main elements, you might call it, the right and the left, the conservative and the liberal sides of Judaism from 2,000 years ago, who were long-standing enemies of one another in many ways. But now they unite, enemies unite, to silence the message of Jesus Christ. Now, who are the Pharisees? For those who don't know or have not heard, the Pharisees' name comes from a root Hebrew word, parash, meaning to separate. They saw themselves as above all the other Jewish people, their Jewish brethren, especially the common people. They were the most religious, the most dedicated, the most holy, at least in their own eyes, and they lived to follow the laws of Moses in intricate detail in every facet that they could imagine. So to look at what their theological you know, background is, they believe in the Bible. Therefore, they believe in angels. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in general in the supernatural, that God made all things. They were more conservative theologically but at the same time, they held their rabbinic tradition, in other words, they held their interpretation of the Word of God as equal to the Word of God, and that got them into trouble more than a few times. Now, I don't wanna, you know, sometimes we do wrong to paint all the Pharisees as bad or wrong. They were some of the most dedicated, you know, they they were religious, they they wanted to follow God, They, they wanted to seek the Lord, and And there are two of them that, toward the end of Jesus' life, became actual followers, disciples, and believers. One of them's name is Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee. At Jesus' death, uh, there was another Pharisee who made available his tomb. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. So there are two Pharisees. Then when Peter preached the gospel in the book of Acts, and it says many Jews became believers, we believe many of those original Jewish believers who became followers of Jesus Christ in the early church were Pharisees who believed and heard the message. So we're not painting the the broad brush of all of them, but some of them and some of the leaders of them came together here to confront Jesus there was a religious spirit behind it. Now, on the other hand, you have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were wealthy. They were aristocratic. Uh, the high priest of all of Israel was a, was a Sadducee. The chief priests were all Sadducees. They made their fortune by their money changing. You remember all the money changing? That was controlled by the Sadducees. And the chief priests were among their number. And the temple concessions were theirs. So theologically, let's look at what the Sadducees believed. Sadducees believed only in the first five books of Moses. Everything else was suggestions to them, you might say. But they believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's it. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in immortality. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead or for that matter, anything else supernatural. It was all about the rules, all about the law. What's legal? What's not legal? What's right? What's wrong? So they had a system of you know morality and values. But it's not for since they didn't believe in the hereafter, they were all about the here and now. That's why they're really into money and power. So these there are the spirit of the Pharisees, very holy, religious, uh, who are in the church. There are Pharisees among the church. And there are also Sadducees they don't believe in all that supernatural stuff and people babbling in tongues and healings and all that but they believe in a right and a wrong and there's a place for the church and teach kids some good morals or whatever so we still have both of those groups even within the church the Sadducees were very pragmatic and very therefore materialistic now I want you to look at this next life lesson Jesus called them out he called them hypocrites And I want you to note in verses two and three, hypocrites cannot understand the signs of the times. In verse two, he answered Jesus, to them, both Pharisees and Sadducees, and to that religious spirit. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red. And threatening hypocrites, you know know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. By these two groups asking for another sign, they were essentially rejecting all the other signs and all the other miracles Jesus had performed up until now. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this. They were not really asking for another miracle to prove who Jesus was. They were really asking him to to do something or try something because they already had made up their mind he was not of God, he was not from God. This new movement that he was bringing was to be rejected, and they're looking for an argument or an excuse to finally destroy him and prove to the rest of the people, don't follow this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. You might put it this way, his enemies would not believe, therefore they could not believe. They'd already made up their minds. You know, there are some people among your family and friends that are like that. They are ready to believe the church is nonsense or the Bible's crazy. And you believe all this spiritual stuff. There's nothing. It's all science. It's all here and now, and then it's over. And there are those who are among us. They've already made up their minds. But God had given a prophecy. In fact, there are were, there were over 300, right around 320 prophecies. Because God, this is one of the the things that separates Christianity from every other religion is the uniqueness in the area of prophecy. Because God is sovereign over uh, all of history and involved in history, he foretells the broad points like an outline of the future so that everyone knows he's the one on the throne and in charge. So God gave an address. He said the Messiah is coming. He started giving all these prophets and each one would give a little piece and different ones. And if you add them all together, it's like 315 to 320 depending on how you count them. It was like an address. From the time of Abraham until the coming of the Messiah, Jesus was about 2,000 years. So they were looking for it generationally for two millennia. And you know, it's just like on on planet Earth, that's seven billion people. But if you want to reach one person halfway around the world in another country or continent, you just put their address. And it doesn't take 300 lines. Their name, uh, their city, their state, uh, their zip code, their country, and you can send it to one out of seven billion or to one home. God had on his envelope, he sent an envelope, he sent a letter, a love letter from heaven to the earth. And on the address it had over 300 lines, so there's no doubt where it was to land. And it landed 2,000 years ago upon the baby that was born in Bethlehem of the lineage of David, and his name was Jesus of Nazareth. Amen? Amen? And God had given a prophecy through Daniel, he gave it even to the year and to the day. From the going forth of the commandment to the restoration and restoring of Jerusalem uh, shall be." And he laid it all out. And and it literally comes down to the day, 483 years later, uh, to the day that Jesus rode on the little donkey in the triumphal entry. They should have known the signs of the times. But they were so proud and so arrogant of their religious heritage, they considered themselves the experts in the things of God. And yet, listen, the experts in religion missed the very reason for their existence when they missed the Messiah. God never designed the truth to only be known to the really smart or the ones with letters or to the ones that uh, you know, have great pedigrees after their names. Jesus said, you cannot discern the signs of the times, and yet, th- and this was all for his first coming. I want to add to you that there are many in our day that cannot discern the signs of the times as we get close to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He is coming, and without going into great detail, the center of the whole thing relates around the original family of Jesus, the Jewish people. Without all the details or going into all the, you know, you can argue about this and that, but I am just telling you, it is not a coincidence that there is such a thing as Israel. There hasn't been a nation called Israel for nearly 2,000 years, except your generation and mine. It's time for us to wake up and discern the times and get ready for what God has to say, because this time, Jesus is not coming back as a lamb. He already did that 2,000 years ago. He's coming back as a lion, as a king. He's roaring, he's ruling, he's reigning, and you gotta get ready for him, amen? So. The next life lesson out of verse 4, the ultimate sign. So they wanted a sign. In verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign shall be given it except, you get one, Jesus said, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he left them and departed. God often used signs or miracles in the Bible to authenticate his chosen messenger. The Lord gave Moses the capacity to do several miraculous signs in order to prove his message, and the Ten Commandments were appointed by God. God later sent down fire from heaven supernaturally to light up the altar Elijah rebuilt on Mount Carmel that had fallen into disuse by the Jewish people because they were busy worshiping other gods and goddesses. So God told the prophet, have a contest, bring all the Baal worshipers up on the mountain, build the altar, and whoever God answers by fire, let him be God. Everybody's like, oh, cool, contest. And fire fell. He did this, God did this to prove that he is the God of Israel and the only true God. So Jesus had done many miracles to demonstrate that he had the power and the authority over nature, over disease, over demons, even over death, by raising others from the dead. But the sign of Jonah would be the greatest miracle of all. This would be God's sign that Jesus was not only Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but the one through whom all of the nations of the earth would be blessed if they would believe and trust in him. So you know the story. There's, there's Jonah, and God tells them, I want you to go to the Ninevites, and I want you to preach to them. I'm going to judge them. they got 40 days. Man, fire's coming down. They're going to be toast. So Jonah says, uh-uh. He gets in a boat in the opposite direction from Nineveh and starts going the opposite way. Why? Because Jonah was prejudiced. He had two problems, pride and prejudice. He hated the Ninevites. And he didn't want to bring a message of, God's going to judge you guys and take you out. Because there might be a chance that they would repent. And if they repented, God wouldn't judge them. And you know, Jonah didn't want none of that. So he gets in a boat, plub, plub, plub he's going the other way. So God, who controls nature, sends a storm that's gonna bring the ship down. All the experienced sailors are going, what? You know, they're very superstitious anyway. And so they're trying to figure out with their different ways, you know, who's the guy? And it lands on, it's this guy, it's this Jewish guy sitting here. You know, they're just sitting, you know, with a mopey attitude. He goes, dude, what's going on? And you're gonna well, okay, look. You guys and all your beliefs and superstitions, a bunch of nonsense, there's only one God, he's God of Israel, I happen to be his spokesman, his prophet, he told me to go preach to the Ninevites, but I don't wanna do that because I can't stand them, they might repent, God wouldn't judge them, so I'm going the opposite way, that's why we're in this trouble. And they go, well now what are we gonna do? You would think that Jonah would say, turn the boat around, go back to shore, drop me off, I'll go do what God said and everything will be fine. But no, Jonah says, throw me overboard. (laughs) Why? Because in Jonah's heart, look, I cannot stand those Ninevites. I'd rather go down in the ocean and drown and die than preach to them because God, you know, he's so forgiving, he might forgive him and I don't want that to happen. So he goes down globally, he's waiting to drown and a big fish swallows him up. He goes, Oh, cool, I get to die in here. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. How long goes on? Three days. So he's in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, and he's still not dead. He can't wait to die, but he ain't dying. And finally, the, the, the great fish goes up to the shore, has a stomachache, which is the rebellious prophet, and vomits him up on the shore, of which I am totally convinced when he was thrown up on the shore it was a little wooden sign that said, Nineveh is right this way. He's been in the belly of a great fish, he's bleached white, he looks like a dead man. And by the way, when he finally lands in Nineveh, he stomps out there and and no, no prophet with less love and more anger delivered a message, God's gonna burn you, wipe you, destroy you. And the whole nation, they looked at him and said, this guy looks like he literally died, went to hell, came back from there, we better do what he said so the whole city repents and God doesn't judge them. Then Jonah goes into a depression. I knew it, so loving and forgiving and all of that. <laughs> and it gets into a depression. So anyway, that's the story of Jonah. Jesus said, that's the sign you get. Only he is the loving one who came not with pride and prejudice, but with love. And for those who even crucified him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was sent from the heart of God. He loved those. And he took... Rather than bringing judgment to humanity, he took our judgment on himself by the crucifixion, the most horrific way that you can die, and said, I did it now, and I paid for it. Now just believe in me and all shall be forgiven for all of eternity. That's what the sign that Jesus gave. And so in Romans chapter 1, verses three and four, let's read this out loud. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now I'm telling you, this separates Jesus from everything else, everybody else, every other religion, every other leader, every other guru, whatever you wanna call them. Because when Jesus went, he predicted, this is what's gonna happen, this is how it's gonna happen, this is the way it's gonna be, and I'm gonna submit myself to it, You know, the only perfect human being, all he ever did was love people, forgive people, heal people, bless people, deliver people, raise people from the dead. And what did we do, humanity? We nailed him to a cross. We're all guilty. The only perfect human being, that's what humanity did. If that doesn't indict all of us, what else does? But then, because of who he was, and because of the purity of his heart, and because he had come from the heart of the Father, On the third day, only he could have done this for all of humanity, for all of our suffering, From the past to the present and into the future, he took sin and he took death and he took disease and he took the demonic realm and he took it and he literally broke it in half over his knee and threw it down and rose from the dead for all of humanity and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead yet shall he live. He that liveth in me shall live forevermore. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I and my Father are one. Come to me and I will give you everlasting life. Hallelujah. Alone. He proved it by the resurrection. Now, the last this is the last life lesson and we're going to read the last set of verses. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees reveal here a spirit of Saul against Jesus the son of David. So, chapter 16 beginning in verse 5, it says, "Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, be watch out for those guys. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread on the ship. But Jesus being aware of it said to them, oh you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread for this journey? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up. No bread, I can make bread, multiply bread, that's nothing to me. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak of the leaven of bread? But, I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine, the teaching, the influence, the attitude, the religious spirit of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So here's Jesus' point. A little, little tiny piece of leaven, which we call yeast, can take a whole lump of dough and and infiltrate all of it and let there be bread that arises. So Jesus is saying, beware of just a little bit of that spirit of these Pharisees and these Sadducees because you can end up resisting the very power and glory of the Spirit of God. Even though it's cloaked in religion, left and right, liberal, conservative, it can all have a religious, spiritual garb to it, but it's not of me. Beware of any influence in that way. Now at that time of Jesus God was wanting to do something he, he was you know re- religion in Judaism needed to be revived And and just as Jesus was the son of David David had taken the nation of Israel at a time uh, Where they had been trapped after the law was given and Moses gave the law they, they fell into just legalism and a spirit of of criticism and even you could hide your bitterness, your pride, your prejudice, and still say, I'm following the rules and I'm religious, but they, they, and so God used David to bring a freshness. No, this is what I intended, this is what I meant. I wanna write my law in your hearts. I want a relationship with you. So God made a tremendous promise. I want you to look at this in Acts chapter 15, uh, verses 16 and 17. Let's read this out loud together. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. That's a quote from a prophecy in the book of Amos. And now it is being quoted by the Jerusalem Council after the Holy Spirit's poured out. All the Jewish people, 3,000 of them get saved, and then they're going out, and now Gentiles are getting saved. It's like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And some of the Jews are going, no, it's not the time for the Gentiles, or this isn't right, and, and the Spirit is saying, no, this is the time. I'm restoring the Tabernacle of David. Now, if you don't know the story of the Tabernacle of David, so you got the, you know, Moses and his tabernacle, and all of the, you know, the religious stuff, and the furniture, and everything else. But then David wanted to come to Mount Zion and he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the seat of God. That's where God sits. It's called the seat of mercy. It's his throne. And so David brought it, but he wasn't reading the scriptures carefully and they brought it on a cart. They put the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's throne, on a cart led by oxen. And they're going along the road and wheel hits a rock and the Ark of the Covenant goes Ooh, like this and Uzzah, a priest goes, oh, we can't let the Ark fall to the ground. So he reaches out to you know, touch it and, and make it safe and God's spirit breaks out and he dies. And then David gets afraid and he leaves it alone for a while. But then he had to repent and he had to go back to the word and say, okay, so what, you know, what's the deal? And then he realized he was doing the right thing, but listen, he was doing the right thing the wrong way. God did not want his seat to be on a cart of wood by, carried by animals. Very specifically, this is how you shall carry my seat. It shall be that you put staves through the Ark of the Covenant, and it is my seat will rest on the shoulders of men. God was saying, I want my throne, my Power, my glory and my presence touching the shoulders of men yes, intimacy closeness relationship so David went ah let's do it the right way and as they finally did it the not only the right thing There are a lot of people that try to do the right thing, but they're doing it the wrong way. And it's a religious spirit that is quenching the move of God. We gotta do the right thing in the right way. So when David did the right thing the right way on the shoulders of men, the people got filled with the glory of God and the spirit. And the king, David, in front of the people felt so transparent and so free, he started to dance like a little boy in front of the whole nation, and he didn't care who was watching. He was so filled with worship and praise and adoration, and he was dancing before the Lord. Amen. Now, his wife looked at that and was totally offended. How dare you? Don't you know who you are? You're the king. You're acting like a child. What in the world are you doing? And she was offended. Her name was Michael, and she was the daughter of Saul. Saul spirit of Saul wanted to quench that spirit of freedom and intimacy and childlikeness. Now, I want to say to you that what God started to restore in the book of Acts, the restoration of the tabernacle of David, is what he wants to do now, 2,000 years later, just before his kingdom comes. He wants to finish what he started. Now, the church has tried a lot of different ways in order to do this. A lot of it has been men-driven and controlled and this and that, but I'm telling you, we are living because we are living in in discern the times. Israel is 70 years old. We just moved our embassy to recognize the most powerful nation on the planet earth moved our embassy to the city of Jerusalem. We are living in, and the world is, stuff is breaking forth all over the world. And there is a religious spirit that wants to control and and protect. And yes, there's been bad things and it hasn't been done right and all of that. But the Spirit of God is saying, I want to set my people free. I want, this is how I want to be worshiped. I want you to worship me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. I don't want you to care what other people see or do it to perform before men. I want you to be like a child because of such is the very kingdom of heaven and worship me with freedom and abandon like David who is a man after God's own heart. You don't have to study too hard to realize the greatest opposition to the move of God is often from within. Throughout history, every denomination similarly has defied and opposed the next move of God, displaying elements of a soul spirit. The Orthodox resisted the Catholics. And then the Catholics started resisting the Lutherans. And then the Lutherans started resisting the Anabaptists. So with each transition, the previous group, which was persecuted for their faith, as they wanted to move forward before, now become the persecutors of the next move of God. And so I believe that what the Lord is doing for such a time as this. Because as God poured out His Spirit on the church in the book of Acts, and Gentiles started coming in, it wasn't just Jews, it was Jews and Gentiles all throughout the Roman Empire. And there was a man who happened to be a Pharisee who came with fire-breathing self-righteousness to quench that spirit, and his name was Saul of Tarsus. He's, in fact, he's from the same tribe. But here's the good news. On the road to Damascus, that religious spirit of Saul, (laughs) the resurrected, Lord Jesus Christ showed him in himself in his resurrected glory from heaven and he knocked that proud Pharisee to the ground and he was blinded by the glory that he saw and he said, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And Saul cried out, who are you? And that blinding, glorious light, the voice spoken said, this is Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. And all of a sudden, from that day, from that moment when he saw the glory of the risen Jesus that he had been persecuting, from that religious spirit, he was struck physically blind for how long? Three days. All he could see was the glory of the risen Christ. On the third day, God healed and brought back his physical sight, but God burned into his mind the resurrected Jesus who had been crucified that was raised from the dead. And then, that's all started to rebuild the tabernacle of David and go to his own people and the Jewish people and say, man, we gotta humble ourselves of our pride and prejudice. This Jesus, he's the one. And he's not only for us, guys, the Jews. He's for the whole world. He's for every nation, language, kindred, and tribe. And that's what God is doing in this very hour. So let us not have a spirit of religion, but let us be humble like a little child and let God do what God wants to do his way. In his timing. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.